Hello, my name is John O'Connell, and welcome to AMX Fika Leadership Podcast. So over these podcasts, I'll be speaking to some inspirational and innovative data and analytic contributors from across industry and the health and care sectors. I'll be asking each of them to share with us some of the exciting work they have underway, which is helping to shape the health and care analytics space, as well as asking some of them their motivational insights into their career paths to date. So why FICA? FICA is a social phenomenon in Sweden, I thought I'd borrow. It's a legitimate reason to set aside some really quality time to catch up with friends, family and colleagues over a coffee and a cake. Joining me today is Mohammed Absar. Uh, he is the head of business intelligence at uh, NHS England. Uh, he's a senior health analytics leader with over 17 years worth of experience delivering IT-enabled business transformation across health analytics projects within strict government's requirements across NHS providers and also across the commissioning landscape. He has a strong focus on joining up data to draw out insights and improve patient care. So fantastic uh, area to be focusing on and welcome to the podcast. Mohammed also has a keen interest in the use of machine learning, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics in the health sector and the ability for it to draw uh, insights uh, from complex data sets but more importantly, a big passion of his is the ability to be able to present technical information to non-technical audiences in an effective manner. So, Mohammed, really delighted to have you join AMX Fika podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much, John. Lovely to be here. Thank you. That's great. And Mohammed, off with the first question we always ask our guests and uh, welcome aboard. Um, Fika's around tea and a coffee with, with friends. Were you a tea or coffee drinker? What's your favourite cake? Oh, well, um, it's a lovely concept, by the way. Um, I, I think uh, tea and coffee are both equal favourites of mine. I tend to flex based on who I'm with. So, for example, when with my wife, she loves tea. That's what I'll have. But coffee, I love the smell of it. So uh, equally uh, enjoy having a cup of coffee first thing in the morning. Uh, in terms of cake, ah, now you've got me. There's quite a few, quite a few. Uh, carrot and walnut is a... Uh, is a safe one you can definitely rely on. Uh, that one's usually on the list. But uh, recently, my my daughter has actually baked a millionaire cake. I think if if, if I'm mentioning the name correctly, uh, in her baking club, and it's been absolutely brilliant. So I think I might be tempted to try that out a bit more. Brilliant sport, very sport. <laughs> Good choice. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. Thank you. So, Howard, would you be able to walk our listeners through uh, your really interesting career journey? You mentioned. Uh, when we last spoke, that you started off, I think, with industry and in, in the banking sector, moving into the healthcare sector with NHS, and then moving into sort of doing interim management and then becoming an advisor. It's really interesting. But I think also coupled with the important message you mentioned about lifelong learning and the importance that is for our community. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, John. Yes. Um, so um, straight after A-levels, actually, um, I found that I had had enough of studies, um, having really smashed my GCSEs and, and won various awards for the for the the, the best grades in the local uh, local borough. Uh, did my A levels? They were not equally comparable. Let's just say, uh, so I had decided I had had enough. I'm going to go and find myself a job in a large reputable company, and uh, effectively work my way up. Uh, very quickly, actually, within a couple of weeks uh, of finishing my summer exams, I landed myself a job in HSBC Bank. Uh, so very pleased with that, you know, felt rather proud 
stayed with the bank, a uh, huge amount of learning, fantastic organization to work for. And I was actually uh, in a branch role in Belsize Park in central London. Um, it really, really enjoyed the job and and wonderful organization, as I say. But sometime in, uh, maybe maybe about a year and a half, two years, there's a real pull from inside as I was the first in the family to have progressed to this stage um, to, to go back to education, really. Um, so here I was really securing a role, which many of my peers would be very jealous of, I think, if you asked some of them. And yet deep down inside, there was something kind of pulling me towards going back to studies. Uh, so really the, the conscious took over, conscious took over and um, I went back into studies to the surprise of many, including family members. Um, I studied uh, at University of North London at that time. It's now called London Metropolitan University and got a first class honours in business information systems. Uh, thereafter, um, I, I felt quite a strong urge to make sure the knowledge that I have is used for good, really. Uh, and from there, I, I managed to land myself my first job in the NHS. It was with a really uh, high profile NHS trust. Only those who know these services will be familiar with the trust. Um, that therein I learned about uh, specialised mental health. Uh, everything from um, adolescent mental health to relationship counselling to lots and lots of other more complex conditions we as human beings suffer from, uh, working with some of the very best in the world in terms of clinicians, but also working with NHS data, which is really where my, my connection with NHS data came uh, started from. Now there, um, I really enjoyed the role, learned lots. And of course, uh, my, my line manager advised me, he saw the enthusiasm in, in myself in learning and understanding and helping in the NHS. And he said, Mo, you really need to get yourself a job in the acute sector to understand how the NHS really works and where the dynamics happen. Um, and of course, at that time, I was still living with mum and dad and uh, they their English is not very good. So I would often be taking them to hospital appointments, doctor's appointments to help translate. Um, both for them and to them. Um, so I found myself in the Royal Free Hospital in London uh, one afternoon, taking time off from work to take mum and dad to a hospital. Uh, and while waiting in A&E, I saw an advert for an A&E systems manager role. I thought, this looks really interesting. This could be fun. Uh, could be what the manager advised. Let's give this a shot. Uh, so I took the fork, um, put an application in deadline on the same day, missed the postal deadline so I actually put the application in under the door in the HR department there's a bit of a journey to find out where their offices were but um, managed to get that in and uh, within a couple of weeks time I found myself at that job at the Royal Free uh, so that, that was quite a quite a journey quite a surprise really but um, I thought this could be an interesting journey let's see where this takes us and of course I was at the Royal Free heading up their any &E systems 24 hours uh, a day. I wasn't working 24 hours a day, but as you know, a and don't shut. Uh, working with the very best, uh, certainly in the clinical area, our technology systems always up and making sure that there was no downtime effectively. Uh, very quickly into that role, I found myself in a hospital which was about to trial the very first instance of a brand new EPR system which had been brought in from the US. Someone at the trust decided we'd be the guinea pigs for the system. Uh, and of course, NHC and I are very keen to test things out to improve our ways of working. And the Royal Free decided to go live 
very shortly, about a year or so into my role with the system, and I took the responsibility for leading the A&E deployment of that system. Uh, therein uh, was a massive learning experience for me in terms of not only how an A&E system operates or how an A&E department operates, both with a smooth running IT system and with nothing, i.e. when there was no system. How does downtime work in A&E department where you've got blue lights, people coming in with blood and all sorts of other uh, road traffic accidents and so on and so forth? Absolutely brilliant experience. I wouldn't change it for anything. But very quickly, what I learned was that actually there's a lot of a uh, lot of learning, good beneficial colleagues here. But um, I, I found myself working with colleagues from Kansas City. So these are Cerner um, designers, developers, side by side with lots of other organisations and, and um, agencies that were brought in to support this rollout of this really complex hospital-wide EPR system. And uh, my conversations with them were were amongst the lines of, you know, th there's a lot of knowledge that you've gathered here. You could really make a change if you became an interim. My personal circumstances also were such that actually I needed to change the job that I was in. And uh, I took the, again, took their advice and reached out to some agencies. And uh, very soon I was on the interim world. I left the Royal Free role had a really helpful conversation with my, my seniors, and they were very flexible in terms of my, my time there, in terms of my notice periods, et cetera. And therein started my 10 plus years uh, career as an interim in the NHS. So just fast forwarding, um, within, within that 10 year period, huge amounts of variety in terms of roles that I carried out in PCTs, CCGs, CSUs, um, and most recently at NHS England here in the London region. Um, only very recently have I switched to a permanent role. Uh, and, and therein is a summary really uh, of my career with the current role, Head of Business Intelligence here for the London region for our medical directorate and for direct and specialised commissioning. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. That's fantastic. And the, amazing, the opportunities that came through are amazing, you know, sort of just by being in the right place at the right time, grabbing the opportunity, but also, you know, just picking up what you said, working side by side with industry. I really, my next question is just think about that that relationship. It's a you know, symbiotic relationship of learning from each other. I'm really interested, you know, from experience as well. Before you know, working with I think the likes of uh, was it Cerno and they're all three, but also from HSBC. Of what you found, kind of from the private sector that you're able to take and take forward in the NHS, but you found much harder. Was there anything that you thought the private sector are doing quite easy, but it's, this is this is challenging that the NHS should be doing, and why isn't it doing what it's yeah, yeah, really good question. Thank you very much. Um, so, so just reflecting on my experience at HSBC, um, the, the very the first two weeks was pure training, and we were taken aside from the branch into a, a, a building where there was full on kind of mock up role model training, huge emphasis on customer service. In fact, to this day, this is going back about twenty years. To this day, I have it ingrained the acronyms LAPACT. These stand for listen to the customer, acknowledge what they've said, listen, acknowledge, probe, and then affirm your understanding. And very, uh, very last bit, so it's listen, acknowledge, probe, lay, uh, A for affirm. And of course, act at the end, uh, take, some, take some action, basically. So the, the acronyms, it's just, it, it's amazing. I, I sometimes just think to myself, how is it that they delivered that training that it's still stuck at the back of my mind? 
this is HSBC Bank, and this was focused around how do you interact with the people wow. you serve? It's incredible because actually many of those principles are absolutely translatable here in the NHS or any other service. So that, that's something that, that really stuck out for me in terms of how much effort, time and focus they've put on training new recruits and training them to focus on the customer. And one, one of the concepts that still, again, another concept that stuck with me was this concept of clear water between ourselves and our competitor. What is it that differentiates HSBC Bank or any other organization from their competitor? So I guess we don't necessarily have competition here in the health sector, but certainly that was something that drove them towards innovation, towards honing their skills, honing their products and services. And clearly it's had an impact. I, I, more operationally, um, certainly in retail banking, uh, I, I found they were very, very clear. I guess this is common to all private sector organizations that every penny must be accounted for. So an example that stuck to me from those very early days in frontline banking, where I was a customer service representative, um, was that at the end of each day, we would do a balancing process where the things you've, uh, the, the monies you've taken in, monies you've given out, not only do they balance in the books, but also balanced in the till. So you do a comparison of what's in the till against what's in the computer system and where you had a discrepancy, nobody would go home. And the way to way to address that is, of course, you find that money. Is it is it been miscounted? Is it the computer record that was wrong, or is it the till that was miscounted, or where whatever's happened but you couldn't square it? We we had a backup small kitty bag, which was you know five to ten pounds worth of extra monies that had been collated, and we would just pick from there. Of course, the, the manager would use their discretion to decide. On the flip side, um, the the NHS, as you know, does fantastically well in so many fronts. It's too much for us to cover here. I mean, one of the things that we do is that we, we put aside the profit. We don't focus on things that will generate most money. Quite rightly, we focus on things that need to be done, things that people that we care for need. So you, you're not comparing like with like, really. But if we, were, if we were to draw some similarities in terms of how we deliver our processes, you know, we, we have a billing process, for example, in the NHS. Providers submit their activity. We check the activity. There is an end-to-end -end process in place, quite robust, actually, if you look at the data analytics side of it. And then, of course, we have the monetary process. And when one joins the activity delivered and the money's spent, it doesn't always tally. And we're okay with that for various reasons. So there is a contrast there in terms of how the private sector operates and how the NHS, and there's clear reasons for it. Uh, in terms of other principles that that we might want to look at in private sector, and you've mentioned, you know, there are colleagues who tend to work in the NHS, they then take a break, they go out to the private sector, and not surprisingly, they come back. Many of them come back. And I think there is actually a real opportunity for us to benefit from those kind of ways of working, because there are principles, ways of working that perhaps we can learn from the private sector and then employ back into the NHS to improve the way we do things. Well, thanks for sharing those fascinating insights. Yeah, no, it's that symbiotic relationship from each other, isn't it? And uh, I'm just really interested, I think, uh, just saying that you, you had those 10 years working in a sort of an interim basis, uh, working across, you mentioned, I think we all spoke across CCGs, commissioning, uh, community, 
uh, and, and also CSUs, and you also work for SCW for, for a while as well. Uh, yes. I, <laughs> I guess for a lot of our listeners who will be listening will be thinking that that is perhaps a challenging career. And the question is, it a challenging career? And, and, and what did you learn from doing that role over 10 years? But also, you know, what did you see as kind of the, the benefits and, and the sort of the cons from, from doing that as, a, as an interim? Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I absolutely agree. It is a challenging career and uh, certainly isn't for everybody. Um, I've personally really enjoyed it. Uh, and to be honest, even in my permanent roles, I would always go above and beyond to deliver what what was asked, but also what was needed, actually. So sometimes the asks didn't necessarily translate to what was needed. So I would go ahead and use initiative and probe and then do more to make sure we hit the spot. And that's something that I think really stuck out for me when I joined the interim world. In the interim world, you're brought in to fix problems that perhaps the normal BAU ways of working or processes didn't necessarily address. Or perhaps you're brought in because they needed an added uh, experience and support to, to complement what's already there. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed is being thrown into a challenging situation, rewarded handsomely for it, of course, but actually thrown into this challenging situation where you're left to your own devices as an expert in the field to go ahead and find solutions. And when we've been when we've been able to find those solutions, with of course senior exec sponsorship and support, there was a real motivational factor for me there. And one of the things I found is, whereas you know, my, my very first contract, I remember it was a three month contract, as was the case with most contracts, you go in and both parties want to, I guess, try each other out as it were, to see does the job fit, does the individual fit? And not one contract did I spend that was less than a year. The only contracts which are short were because I wanted to move on for some family or non-work related reasons. So, so again, therein, I guess, we, we had some synergies between the line manager that I had and the projects that I was doing. So that, those are, I guess, some of the positives. Um, I, I managed to learn huge amounts because of those different roles that were there. So working with lots of different colleagues, clinicians, operational leads, and, and analysts for, at all levels, really, and some of the very best we have even to date in the, in the industry, in the NHS. Um, and of course, those discussions, those sitting downs with the clinicians to say, what were their frustrations? What were their challenges? Sitting down with the commissioners and the contract leads, both from providers, from the CCGs, to just listen and to not judge, uh, not to come in with some baggage that we typically do, uh, to really get to the bottom of what the root causes were, set us up really well to be able to address the problems. And the, the real support I had, which we couldn't have delivered anything without, is that I had line managers uh, who trusted in me, who gave me the flexibility and when I needed support, I would go to them and they were able to give me that direction and they were able to call whoever it is to make those things happen so that we can deliver the end results. And of course we did. It is as a result of that, the contracts continued and I've never looked back since then. If we are looking at the flip side on some of the difficulties, um, I think as with any role, there are challenges. Some of the challenges that, that, that I personally have were actually changing roles periodically, not knowing whether the contract would, would extend for sure. So my line managers would give me the verbal assurance, Mo, don't worry about it, we're doing the right thing, we're generating results, it will come, it's just paperwork that's taking time. So initially that 
wasn't sufficient for me and there was there would be a level of anxiety but then after a short while i realized actually we're all right uh, that this the, the sro's got is supporting me and i know what i'm doing and and so that that was a challenge i think initially the the other challenge and and i think which ultimately got me to switch to permanent role is that i i had my we, we had our first child uh, my daughter who's now 12 uh, and I was spending some time away from home when actually my heart was at home to be with my wife, to be with my daughter. And um, we couldn't do that all the time when we wanted to. Um, so I think that if you if if you cannot do that and you feel role requires you to do so, then that will be an incredibly challenging thing to overcome. Thanks for sharing that. So in summary there, I suppose it's kind of, you know, working in an opportunity, you have that accelerated personal growth that you, you get from it in that challenging environment, but equally, most important, as you mentioned as well, you need to have that senior leadership sponsorship or that SRO sponsorship and support makes all the difference. I suppose very quickly you can get a gauge from the organisation you're in very quickly, isn't it? And then I think, as you mentioned, it's family and life changes, your priorities change. Um, I did a lot of travel globally, it sounds great, but you can only do so many years of it. Um, yes. And then it's uh, you need to change. But no, thanks, fascinating insights. And just interested as well, you, you mentioned about, you know, overcoming uh, sort of unexpected challenges. What, what was some of the, what were some of the biggest sort of challenges you you had, uh, and how did you? What was your sort of strategy for overcoming your challenges? And again, really, really important thing to focus on, John. So thank you again for that. Um, I think if we were to categorise the challenges into two buckets, you've got the technical ones, where either you need a technical solution, or you need some monies, or uh, you need some documents, or some procedural items that need to be resolved. I think those were almost part and parcel of the game. They were always there. And with those, I think, so long as you've got your senior support and you can listen to the problem space, you can take a broad view of the problem space and take time to understand, I think those are quite easy to resolve. The, the ones that took, I think, more time were the people-related ones. And very quickly you realize that actually behind every challenge there are some people involved and we're human beings and we're triggered often by the common things you know is this going to affect my job how is this going to make me look like amongst my seniors and my peers what impact will this have in my team if i'm the leader of a team um what this project that you know is being done by somebody else is this being done to me or done with me all those very fundamental things that develop anxiety and create worries in us i, I found those were perhaps the ones that took me longer to get around but once you begin to realize that there are some human factors at play here and we need to respect and treat and address these individuals who are human beings like you and i who have real concerns uh, that aren't technical. They're not to do with the technical tools or the database technology or anything like that. They're something simpler or something more complex, depending on how you look at it. One can then begin to say, okay, fine, there is a person involved whose role used to be such and such. How is this impacting them? We can have those conversations in a safe way with those colleagues. And, and that's, I, I think, Generally speaking, those have been some of the biggest challenges that I've had to overcome. And actually, having gone through it repeatedly, you begin to really appreciate that actually, when you speak to the colleagues that are involved in the context and the environment where a project or a program is being delivered, you can have those conversations in a way 
uh, as a person to person. And when you start speaking to someone with appreciating their view of the world, with an understanding and empathetic view to it, we can begin to say, actually, what are the problems that you're having and how might I be able to help you resolve some of those through this broader objective? And that's helped me to, I think, navigate some of those problems. And actually, I've made some of the best, most long-standing friends as a result of some of those problems. Because you've, you've had an opportunity to speak to somebody at a, at a much deeper level, not just because I work with you or because your role is such and such, but because you're a person who's in this challenging environment and we've been able to talk through and find a solution together. So I'm not sure if that's that's a long-winded answer. Uh, I'm hopeful that that's given you some, some nuggets there, but I'm happy to right. elaborate. No, fantastic. Uh, we love the, the lens you use there, both the technical and the human, the human-centric sort of two lenses, I think, are really, really good. And that piece about being, I suppose, more, more authentic and that human touch you mentioned as well, you know, tying into people's emotions, reputationally, what impact does it have on, on, on people? And, and, and do they feel it's been done to them? Are they part of it? So, so valuable. And that covers in all areas. That's really, that thanks for sharing. That's really good insights. I, I was yeah. just going to say, John, um, just hot off the press, actually, we, we had yeah. one of these issues come up only yesterday. Okay. Loads of emails, you know, emails from one party to another, to their execs, their seniors, line managers, and everyone else in the house copied in. No, we're not going to do this. It's not our fault. It's their fault. They didn't do it. And I just reviewed the chain of emails. And of course, you can see what the thread is. The thread is somebody's having to do more than what they would normally do because somebody else has made a mistake. All it needed was a telephone call Sorry. to say, you know what? We, we, we've made a mistake. We shouldn't have done it like this. It is entirely our fault. Yeah. But the only way to solve this is for you to do this one bit for us. And we appreciate that. And we appreciate that it's going to be an extra work for you. And if there's any way we can help you, please let us know. Straight away, it resolved the problem. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a technical issue at all. Uh, it was, again, you know, they were absolutely right to, you know, dig their heels in and hold their ground because they're having to do extra above and beyond what they're going to do. So yeah, exactly as you say, it's just noticing what the issue is and being able to focus on the actual item as opposed to the noise that surrounds all of these and, and tackling it head on. And just finally, just finishing off, I think when we you know, started off at the beginning, we met, I reading through your sort of profile, it said that you know, um, your ability to present, I think we were mentioning, was really sort of technical information to non-technical audience in an effective manner, how important that is. It all sounds really easy and you make it look easy, but it's a, a skill, I think, from a data analytics perspective that we need to kind of develop. And, you know, for our listeners, are you able to sort of provide any insights from sort of, I suppose, the daily work that they have to do? You know, it's been a lot of time on analysis, um, but then sometimes it can be lost in the communication. You lose you lose the benefit of what you're, what you're trying to sort of, uh, sort of get across. Is there any sort of word calls, kind of hacks or sort of best practice that you, you've you found that has worked for you that you can share with our listeners on that? So it's a really, really important area for, for data analytics. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly as you say, th this is crucial really for us as analytical communities to be able to understand and to be able to work with. Um, the, the analysis work that we do, the data sets we extract, the data we join from disparate sources to create a position, they're there for a purpose. There's a business question that someone has raised for which this work is being done. If we've gone headlong into the analysis without really appreciating what is the business context, what are the questions or you know what are the 
objectives of the person or persons that this request has come from, if we hadn't really appreciated this, then actually there are real risks to miss the point here. So the very first thing I tell my team is, what are the business questions that our colleagues want to answer for which they've come to us for support? Do you know them? And if you don't know them, let's go back to them. So we've been inculcating this in our team. So that is really, really crucial right from the outset. What is it that you're trying to do with this? Once you've understood those contexts, you've understood the general objectives, you as an analyst or an analytical leader or a team leader can begin to use your skills, your knowledge of the different data sets, your knowledge of the pros and cons of each of these data sets, your in-depth understanding of how you might join up these disparate bits becomes, this is what comes to play because you're the expert. So you've got the business question, you know the knowledge already, now you need to do some extraction and numbers. So long as you remind your colleagues, this is the question, Go ahead and do what you think is best, but I need whatever output you produce to address that question. If you then go and find, actually, we don't have the data for it, there is a tendency, isn't there, to draw your own biases and, and perhaps say, ah, oh, the data is showing this. But actually, what you find is that as soon as you do that, you will be found out because you get the data, you present it with a spin, and sooner or later, the business questions will come. And as you pro, of course, all those things that you haven't explored appear to show up. So it's okay to say, actually, we don't have the data for it, or actually the data had such material gaps, here's what we could find. But we believe if we had XYZ, we could answer this more robustly. Um, we, we do unfortunately work in an environment where the data is not perfect, where there are real gaps. Often we have to deal with ambiguous data and we're required as leaders in analytics to make sense of it. Again, another principle that I've, I personally have used and I continue to kind of advise the team to do is to say, fine, you don't have the full perfection of the data set. Do you have vast majority of it? We deal with health inequality as a key area, and we've mentioned this before between in, in our conversations. A good chunk of our data, almost 80% of our data, doesn't have, for example, ethnic coding. Does that mean we cannot do analysis that is to do with ethnicity and health? Uh, you know, uh, outcomes may vary? The answer is absolutely not. We've got 80% of the data. So it's just looking at what do we have and is it sufficient to be able to answer the question of the day? So I think it's really, in summary, zooming out and looking at what is it that the business wants to answer, using our skills and knowledge of the data sets, and then to say of that which we have, is it good enough? Not is it perfect, but is it good enough to answer the question? Really great advice. No, thank you for sharing. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to sort of um, what you said about is it good enough? And it's interesting talking about if you look at the advancement of machine learning and AI models going forward. And then if you look at the push towards becoming a greener society, and you know, your AI model is from analyst perspective and data science, don't keep sweating it until you know, is it good enough? Does it get you to some sort of algorithm that, that produces output and then turn the server off? And it's it's a different approach, but you know, I really, really good feedback. Thank you. Pleasure. Co completely agree again. And AI and ML is, is a really interesting yeah. area. As you know, it's, it's been in use, yeah. in, in use in the private sector for many decades. And we use it, you, you know, almost ubiquitously without even knowing that it's happening and it's being used. But in the NHS, I'm really, really keen to stress this point that as with any tools we use in the NHS, 
it has absolutely got to be wrapped around with clinical leadership, with clinical advice, because it is our doctors and our consultants who tend to have the baseline understanding of any of these subjects. Sometimes we might use AI and a lot of resource to answer questions that they already know. The real added bonus is where perhaps we can get there sooner, that we perhaps we can focus the attention on those, you know, 100,000 cases, on those 10,000 perhaps, or perhaps we can add to the body of knowledge that they already have by using, you know, random forest methodology or any other of the like market basket analysis, private sector would call it, but certainly the same principles. If there's coterminous or homogenous factors within patients, could we, could we perhaps use those to try and get in earlier in the patient's pathway? And I think that's really where, where machine learning and AI could really help us, is to be able to prevent in line with our long-term plan. Mohammed, thank you so much for, for sharing your fascinating journey. I think your career is fascinating and the walkthrough is really sort of uh, insightful and sort of inspiring for our listeners, I'm sure. And then also talking about the benefits of working side by side from industry and we, that sort of relationship we learn from each other and, and the benefit that comes from there. But also then moving into the sort of interims and sort of looking about the opportunity for a sort of personal growth and accelerated learning that that provides and, and, and you know, fascinating insights to that. And then also I think you know, around the challenges, I think the, the lenses of both technology and people, I think it's a fascinating lens to start to look at and that human element, that human centric, can't overstate how important that is. And then finally, you mentioned also about the, you know, the, the modeling piece and you know, making sure you know, if you're presenting, you've got that clinical buying at the beginning because the clinician, the clinician map is so, so important. But you know, outside of all the great work you're doing, uh, leading was it the health inequalities work, uh, analysis, analysis work across London, what do you do to sort of unwind and de-stress after the day? Thank you. Yeah, really important. Again, um, you know, our, our work doesn't stop. stop. Our work doesn't stop. But uh, as we said earlier in our conversation, we do need to find time just to zone out. Um, some of the things that I do, um, my, my son and I have an agreement that when it hits five o'clock, he should come to the door and break in and disturb anything I'm doing. Sometimes that works. So I spend some time with my children. Great advice. <laughs> And uh, I tend to put the guards down and you know jump on the bed, do some wrestling, whatever works for them. Uh, so spending time with my children and with my wife, absolutely one of the best ways that I unwind. Uh, certainly during the pandemic, we've had times where things were pretty stressful. Um, and one of the things that I picked up from my colleagues is that to go for gentle walks in your own area, actually, and to try and actively notice things that you didn't pay attention to, from people's front gardens to the, the trees in the park that's in your area, incredible advice and I've benefited hugely from it and actually I've taken that into my own garden so I've spent some time to learn the difference between camellias and azaleas uh, I've got my daughter involved she's uh, helped me put some labels on the plants in terms of what's ericaceous and what's not um, so that the garden has been a wonderful anecdote really um, to, to the stresses of the working life and of course uh, I, I try and do some exercise as well which is all very important as you can imagine um, given given our kind of lots of hours in front of the computer um, so in that front the, the walking and of course swimming a uh, little bit of pilates whenever, whenever I, I get a chance for the for the back and so on so all of those things i think have helped me to keep sane and, right. and carry on yeah, the important kind of state the importance of play and, and nature i think absolutely and keeping yourself recharged and you did say something when we last spoke which is just a shout out you mentioned a good podcast for you to listen to you want to share that with our listeners as well yeah yeah absolutely and th this ties back to the learning. Um, it's 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 amazing that we have so much knowledge now available. 
through our phones, the handheld devices that we have, through our laptops at work, from podcasts to videos on YouTube and so on. Uh, and it's all free, absolutely free. So never, certainly in my entire life, have I been in a situation where you can learn things from the likes of Harvard and you know MIT and Oxford and Cambridge free of charge. Mm. And podcasts are a wonderful way, I found certainly uh, over the last couple of years, uh, to really zone out from your day-to-day -day work. Uh, and, and actually, even when you're walking or cycling or doing something else and listening in, I've got a number of personal favourites. Um, there's one called Feel Better, Live More by Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. There is another one which is called The Doctor's Kitchen, actually. Oh. Uh, and this one's really interesting because it brings food uh, in the forefront. It's the food we eat. It brings together people from all walks of life. And then it focuses on how can food be used as medicine? Uh, and of course, more recently, I've come across another one um, by someone called Mohammed Gaudat. Um, this is an Egyptian gentleman who used to be a Google executive. Uh, very, very famous on the internet. I didn't never heard of him really before until very recently. He was mentioned in one of the other podcasts. And I thought, let me check out who this guy is. And of course, I've been hooked since then. And uh, the podcast series is called Slow Mo. <laughs> so fantastic yeah. name. So really, the, the, their intention is to just slow us down a bit and focus on some things that matter, uh, perhaps outside outside our working life. So I've enjoyed all three of those, the, the, the Feel Better, Live More, Doctor's Kitchen mm. and Slow Mo. Thanks for sharing. And we'll make sure we get those links for our listeners on the end of this podcast. But no, thanks for sharing those. Yeah, wonderful. And thanks very much for you know, sharing your insights. It's been really great to, to speak to you. And Dio, best of luck with your work you're doing around health inequalities for London and sharing across nationally. But uh, yeah, really inspiring to sort of hear your journey. And thank you again. Hopefully we'll have you on again. Thank you, Nahal. Thank you so much for having me, John. Take care. So I'd like to thank our speaker for joining us today and for everybody else tuning in to this podcast. Uh, look forward to seeing you in the future.